Just that little bit of extra talking at the extra meeting today has <clears throat> made my throat a little grisly, so hopefully it will make it. I think it will, but if not, I'll tag one of you and you can finish out for me, okay? So be praying about that, if it, if it is you. It could be you. Uh, if you'll turn to uh, Genesis chapter 37, we're going to look at this next part of Joseph's story. Um, this follows right on from last week's scene where Joseph had the dreams, uh, and now we get to that darker chapter in his life where his brothers sell him uh, into slavery. Definitely not a highlight of Joseph's life, nor of the brothers, nor of Jacob, nor of anybody. This is a pretty uh, terrible scene, but one that I think we can see the fingerprints of God in. And so let me read it to you, and we'll talk about it. Uh, now, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he's the oldest, just to remind you, uh, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue them out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then, Well, that's a good thing, right? <clears throat> I think it's a good thing. Uh, then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify if it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. 
Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol with my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The word of the Lord. Amen. Have you ever, uh, on a trip somewhere, accidentally taken the long way around? Yeah, (laughs) right. It happens from time to time, right? Uh, very recently, you know how bad it is to get to Orlando these days and back? It seems like it's getting worse. Maybe I'm just getting older and more like cranky, but it seems like it's getting worse. And uh, we were coming back from Orlando. It's been a little bit now, but um, I decided, okay, instead of waiting on I-4, I'm going to get off at another road, and it's going to be so much faster. And I got off around Kissimmee, whatever that road is that goes down and around into Polk County. Bad idea, y'all. Uh, it is perhaps a little shorter kind of as the crow flies, but the traffic on that road is even worse than the other, and it actually kind of takes a bigger elbow around than I thought, and so we ended up, it was a couple hours or so uh, of journeying, whereas it probably would have just been about an hour and 15 had I been patient enough just to sit there for a little bit. This happens. Uh, when it happens in traffic, not a big deal. We can laugh about it later. What about when it happens in life, in real life? And what about when you're not driving? Isn't that a common experience? Uh, You have a prospect ahead of you. I am going to do such and such this year, and it's going to be wonderful. And then suddenly, out of nowhere seemingly, a detour, a blockade, uh, some act of God or act of some other person that throws your life off course And you may end up doing that thing that you set out to do, but it may be very much not in your timetable, a long time after. This story begins the detour for Joseph and for Joseph's whole family. What was it, let me ask you this, what was it last week that God had shown Joseph in a dream? Yes. That's right. He's going to save his family and other families in the world when his brothers and his parents come and bow down before him. And so what would you think the next step would be in achieving that dream? Go to college. college. (laughs) Joseph, you got to get into a good college because if people are going to bow down to you, you've got to know your stuff, right? Something like that. Isn't that how we would do it, though? We would have it all planned out. This is what you need to do next. This is the ticket to success. And yet, a lot of times, our lives, if we're honest, are not in our hands. Right? Not saying we don't have choices. We do. But I'm saying, as overall, our lives are out of our hands. Lots of stuff happens. And here for Joseph, I guarantee you, he did not expect the next steps on his journey to being the savior of his family as his brothers getting together to try to kill him. And then only as a consolation, they sell him into slavery. I mean, that would not have been his next step. And yet, here's the beautiful thing about this passage. Although we don't see God too much within this passage, 
His name is not mentioned, I don't think, at all, right? God seems to be absent. And I'm sure that if you're Joseph, he seemed to be absent. And probably if you're the boys, you wanted him to be absent because you wanted to get away with what you were doing to your brother. And yet, isn't it true that this actually is a great step in the direction of Joseph becoming the man that God was going to use to save his family and the families of the world? He had no idea, but it was happening. I mean, there's a chain of, re- of, of events here, none of which you can remove and still get to the place where Joseph is storing up grain in Egypt and letting people come and get it. And so let's look this t- t- tonight. Uh, this is a, a tough thing to, to, to think about because it is such a painful reality when you live it out. But yet the Bible is over and over again bringing us against this. That it's really good for the heart, even when we're suffering and struggling, to recognize God is still working his purposes out. Let's look at three things. Three questions, okay? You can see these in your bulletin. First of all, why does God choose to work through suffering? Why? Second, how can a holy God work through sin? That's hard to understand. And then lastly, what lessons can we learn about trusting God from all of this? All right, let's think about it. First of all, why does God choose to work through suffering? Well, the fact that he does is something that we see not only in this story, but in many stories of the Bible. We'll talk about some of those and review some of those in just a minute. But let's pay attention first to how he's doing it here. Uh, Look at verses 12 through 17. And answer this. Was Joseph doing anything wrong when his brothers trapped him and sold him into Egypt. He's wearing the robe. Was that wrong, do you think? Yeah, the, the fault may have been more with his dad there. You know, why make that fancy robe for your brother? It's kind of like wearing a target on his back. It could have been. Although it doesn't necessarily say he was spying, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't use that exact language. I think it's a pretty good inference based on the fact that we read last week, Joseph had, remember, brought a bad report of them to their father, which that, that phrase, bad report, did have a flavor of maybe tattletale to it. Um, it might not necessarily, though, be that J- Joseph has bad intentions in this. After all, he's just doing what his father told him to do. He's still really just a kid, 17 years old. I mean, an older kid, but a kid nonetheless. What else? What's Joseph doing? Bad or good? Seems like he's being obedient to me as well. In fact, there are several times along the way where Joseph could have made an excuse and given up on the whole journey, and he doesn't. And he could have. That's right. He could have just said, hey, I saw them out there. They were fooling around and the sheep were everywhere and you better go get them, you know. But he didn't do that. Instead, he can't find them. He finds out they're a long way away from where he went. You know, Dothan and Shechem aren't necessarily all that near to each other. And so he has to go from Shechem, where he went at first, all the way over to Dothan, right? But nevertheless, he keeps going. Because he wants to do what his dad told him to do. 
Uh, maybe, just maybe, Alex may be right. He may have in his mind some ulterior motive of spying on them to give another bad report. But it could also be that Joseph sincerely wants to know and wants his father to know how things are going with his brothers and with their flocks. We're just simply not told. There's nothing on the surface, however, that makes us think Joseph is doing anything that would deserve the treatment that he's going to get. Everybody agreed with that? Here is a man who looks like he's all about doing his duty and being obedient and you know, living for the Lord, if you will doing the Lord's work. And yet, God allows tremendous suffering to come into his, experience, into his experience while he's on the road of obedience. <clears throat> Can you think of any other times in the Bible where that occurs? <clears throat> Somebody's on the road of obedience and God allows suffering to be upon the path. David. David. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. David. What else? Paul. Of course. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He was left for dead. He was sleepless. He hungered. He thirsted. You name it. Job. Peter. Yes, that's kind of the point, right? The, the better question is, who in the Bible doesn't have this? And actually, I don't think you can name a single one. Um, the common experience of God's people is that even when you're on the road to obedience, even when you're doing what God wants you to do, that does not make you immune from the difficulties of life, the suffering of life, even really bad suffering in life. There's no immunity there. And the suffering doesn't mean automatically like we often think it does. It doesn't automatically mean God is against me. God doesn't care. I must be on the wrong path. I need to turn around and make a U-turn so that I get onto the path of blessing again. Now, there's a mystery in this. But I think we can get a little bit to the mystery by considering two things. The first thing is to consider just uh, an example from natural life. Um, if you are, for example, wanting to become stronger, say you want to have stronger muscles in your upper body and you want to be able to lift more, what do you have to do to build those muscles? Tear it apart, lift more. Involved in that process is what? Pain, suffering. It is a cliche, no pain, no gain. But it is, it, is, it is a cliche, but it is very true, right? I mean, you're not going to get stronger if you don't push yourself a little bit at a time. Now, you can't push yourself too hard, of course, and break everything. But it, if you don't push yourself too much, you've got to push yourself just beyond the pain over and over again in order to continue to grow, in order to continue to develop. That's, that's an example from the natural life. Now, from the spiritual life, think about Jesus Christ. All right? Think about Jesus because he's the ultimate example. And I actually think that the reason why there's no other example of a follower of God who doesn't suffer in the way of obedience is because all of them are really just united to Jesus. Jesus is the original sufferer. And you know what the Bible says about Jesus? In fact, let me, let me take you to it because this is actually an interesting and shocking thing that it says. It's in Hebrews and it's in verse uh, chapter 2, 
And then there's another one later, but let's go to 2.10 first. Y'all got that? Do you ever have their Bible or no? <clears throat> I don't want to sit here and wait if you don't have it and you're not moving to it. I'll just read it to you. Uh, Hebrews 2.10, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It goes on to say that though Jesus was a son, with a capital S, the Son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Somebody cracked that theological nut for us. How did the Son of God learn obedience through suffering? Yes, that's right. Yes, because as a human being, he, he was both God and man. As a human being, he had to, he could only do it the honest way, the way every human being has to do it. He had to learn to practice obedience through difficulty. Jesus, whose human nature was spotless, unlike any of ours. And so if a spotless human being had to learn to obey God through hard things and suffering, what about us spotted human beings? Even more so. Because there's a different kind of work that has to be done in my life. Not only do I have to learn the practice of obedience, I have to learn to want to obey in the first place. I've got to learn to stop wanting to sin. I've got to learn to be humble and stop thinking everything about myself. I have to learn to consider other people before myself. I have to learn that God's jealousy is more important than mine. There's so, there's so many things that I have to learn that Jesus didn't have to learn because he was spotless, which makes the necessity of resistance in the path that much more important. Suffering is an indispensable part of learning to become like Jesus. There's no other way. Martin Luther said, to make a Christian, you need two things. Prayer, or three things, he actually said. You need theology, that is, learning from the Bible. You need prayer, and you need suffering. Three ingredients. Theology, prayer, and suffering. If you take one of those links out, you won't get it. And so the mystery of what's going on in Joseph's life is God is allowing, and we'll talk in a minute about why God allows these particular kinds of suffering in his life, which are, which are different than a lot of suffering, because this is suffering that is received at the hands of someone else's sin, which is a whole different can of worms, which we'll get to in a minute. But nevertheless, just notice, God allows him to walk a path of suffering in order to get to the end of his dream, rather than just taking him straight there, because there are things that Joseph needs to learn that he can only learn by taking that path. Let, let's speculate a little bit. What if, after Joseph had this dream, the next scene, Pharaoh swoops in and makes him his second in command? And all the brothers come and bow to him right then. Boom. 
Sure. What else? Do you think Joseph has the character to handle this? That he would later have? Where, remember Joseph at the end? I mean, I don't want to spoiler alert here, but maybe you've read it before. At the end, Joseph literally weeps when his brothers bow to him. He's not sitting there saying, wow, finally I made it. You punks. <laughs> at the end of his life, he weeps. He's brokenhearted over them. That did not happen overnight. He acknowledged it to be God. He didn't take credit for it at all. At 17, I'm not all that confident he would have been that way. He probably would have taken credit and he probably would have, you punks, rather than the weeping, heartbroken, genuinely concerned about them, genuinely concerned about his father, and genuinely giving the credit to God. Character is why you have to suffer. James, we know that character produces patience. And patience, character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Wow. That's James and it's also found in that similar form in um, Romans 5. That's right. Both places. A little bit different wording. I may have quoted Romans 5 while saying James, but there's a similar theme there. Different, slightly different list, but both say suffering produces character. And so what we see here is a mystery. Now listen, <clears throat> I'm not trying to make this sound easy. And I hope everybody hears me here. I, this is not easy, actually. It, when, when you go into suffering, it is not easy to remember this. And it is, there are no easy answers as to why God allows this or that exactly and how that all works out. Not easy at all. Uh, we, we are up against massive uh, mysteries, right? Massive mysteries. Um, things that only God could understand. You see? Um, but even when we can't explain the mystery of what only God can understand, it is absolutely vital that we understand what is revealed to us and what is given to us. Which is that when suffering takes place, it doesn't mean we're off course necessarily. It may actually mean we're exactly where God wants us to be. And God's purpose in building us into people like Jesus may not be aborted. It may not be mission aborted. It may be actually this is where he's wanting to put you through your paces the most, to make you most like Jesus. Y'all know, I mean, again, spoiler alert, but you know what happens next in Joseph's life. It gets worse. He goes to jail twice. Right? It's bad. And then finally... 20 years later, 20 years later, his dream, God works through suffering. He chooses to do so. It's not by accident. It's on purpose. Now, secondly, how in the world can a holy God work through sin? This is an even more troublesome question. Because some suffering, right, you kind of get. 
natural disaster, um, random, act, random things that happen. I mean, those things are a little bit easier to explain and understand that God's in control. What about when somebody hurts you or you hurt somebody because you sinned against God? Is God still in control then? Is he still working? Well, yes. Look at the story. Um, look at the brothers, verses 18 to 28. Their sin is enormous. Is it not? I mean, it is ugly. It makes for very painful reading. Let's list out all the ways they sin. Right? What do they do? They conspire to murder. That, that's a, I'd call that a sin. Wouldn't you? Accessory to murder. And had Reuben and Judah not stepped in, they would have actually done so, right? They, they threw him in a pit. Thankfully, it didn't, wasn't full of water. But then again, he had to fall all the way down the pit onto dry ground, which probably didn't feel too good. So it was either drowned or break a bone. Yes, sir. Hatred, yes. Absolutely. In fact, remember we talked about this morning, murder is the fruit, sin, and then there's sins underneath. You see the hatred, you see the conspiracy. You also see the same thing Jesus talked about. If you speak evil against your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. Well, they do that too, right? Notice, I mean, this is really interesting. Uh, where it says, um, what verse is it where it says, here comes this dreamer. Verse 19. I'm not sure why the English translations don't bring this out, but literally it says, here comes the Lord of the dreams. The Baal of the dreams is what they call him. Which means, Baal means Lord. And I don't know why all the, all the English translations just say dreamer. But that makes it sound a little bit less mocking than it actually sounds in Hebrew. Here comes the master of dreams, the king of dreamland. What are they doing to their brother by their words? What? That's right. They're lowering his value by their words. And it's very important that they're mocking. That's what mockery does, right? Mockery lowers the value of someone with the words, as do other forms of sin with words. And this story makes it clear that the connections between hatred in the heart and conspiracy to do ill and words that are spoken in hatred, all those things are deeply connected. And they're all ultimately connected to the, the act of physical murder. They're only different from them by degree, not by kind. What else do you see them doing that's sinful? Human trafficking. Yes, exactly. Um, this was a sin in the Bible. Um, in the Old Testament law that Moses would later give the people, to kidnap someone and sell them into slavery was worthy of capital punishment, death. God doesn't like it, you know, and, and yet here they are, literally kidnapping their brother by throwing him in the pit and then selling him off to these Midianite traders. What else? Yeah, right. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and, and you, I see the coveting, especially when they say, 
Here comes the Lord of the dreams. Let's kill him and throw him into the pits. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. You kind of get that covetous. He's, we're not bowing to him. No way, no how. This will stop it. There's a covetousness in that. Why didn't God give us that dream? Why him? The little pipsqueak? What else? They conspired a lie to the dad, right? A lie which literally nearly kills Jacob. Dishonored the father. Yep. Is there a commandment left? The familiar bonds are broken here. Yeah, completely shattered. Uh, humanly speaking, you would find really no way to say this family could ever get put back together again based on what they did. The fact that it does come back together again is only the miracle of God's grace. It's not explainable by human possibilities and logic. I mean, the, the family is completely torpedoed by their action. Um, even Reuben and Judah. Now, Reuben and Judah come out a little bit stronger in this story. They're both older than the other brothers, um, and they both defend uh, Joseph, at least in terms of keeping him from dying. But both of them have, it seems like, ulterior motives in doing so. What does Reuben say? He wants to be seen as the rescuer, right? He says, don't kill him, just throw him in the pit. And his idea, it says, was to later come back and rescue him and so that he could deliver him to his dad, so that his dad, he'd be in good graces with his dad. Now, Reuben had a reason for that. Uh, we had actually skipped this part because it was in a long list of names. But we're actually told that Reuben had ended up having a sexual relationship with one of Jacob's wives, not his mother, but another one of the wives, Bilhah the servant. And that was publicly known, that he had had a sexual relationship with his, basically his stepmom, I guess you would say. And obviously that will make you fall out of graces with your dad, right? And so here's an opportunity, maybe in his mind, for him to get back in. It's all kinds of messed up. And then Judah has the idea of slavery. It does tell us that he wanted to sell him into slavery um, because he didn't want to kill him, because after all, he's our own flesh and blood. So at least Judah had that decency. But he goes on to give his maybe more real reason why he wanted to sell him into slavery. What does it say? I want, it's, it's more profitable. He's worth more money alive than dead. They are... They are sinning against Joseph and their dad in just about every way you can imagine. And yet, God allows it to happen. In fact, the events that happen because they sin actually turn out to be the stepping stones on the way to God's purpose of salvation happening in the family. Let me try to explain this a little bit. And again, I want to make sure you understand, this is a mystery bigger than we can fathom, how God handles sin. It's a mystery. 
But here's some insights that the Bible gives us. Why does God allow sin to go on in the world? Why does he allow it to affect even his people, both by them committing it and by them having it committed against them? Well, it seems to me there's at least two reasons for it. In God's mind, based on what he says in the Bible, there's only one thing that can be done with sin. What is that? Total destruction. Right? Sin, there is no peace made with sin in the Bible by God at all, ever. Uh, no matter how hard you try, you'll never get God to say, good is evil and evil is good. And you'll never get him to say, don't worry about it, let's let bygones be bygones. God will destroy sin. But within that one purpose, it seems to me in Scripture there are two ways that God is choosing to carry out that object of destroying sin. Either A, he punishes people for it and destroys them with it. Or B, he turns them from sin to him and shows clemency or mercy by turning them away from it and turning them from a life of sin into a life of obedience and worship and grace. Every time God allows a sin in the Bible like these, it, it seems to me that God is always trying to work out both of those things at the same time. On the one side, God is trying to judge and punish people for sin. Well, don't you know sin contains its own punishment? Sometimes the only way for sin to be punished is to allow sin to carry itself out to its furthest reaches. That's the case, for example, we see in Pharaoh. Pharaoh, it says in Exodus, it goes back and forth between saying, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It goes back and forth between those two things. What that is showing you is how the more Pharaoh resisted the Lord, the more the Lord resisted Pharaoh. And the Lord began to hand Pharaoh over bit by bit to his sin. Sin became its own judgment. He hardened more under sin. He became less open to God's offers of grace. He became less sensitive to God's will the more he sinned. And that became itself the judgment of God on his sin. Oftentimes, God allows sin to play out for that very reason. He is bringing upon um, the sinner their own sins, letting them fall into their own trap, as the Psalms say over and over again. But the second thing is also going on. Sometimes God allows sins to happen and to play out in our lives, whether it's the ones we commit or the ones that are committed against us, because he wants to bring us to that critical point of turning. And sometimes the only way that we'll get to that point of turning is if we're brought to the end of ourselves. And the only way to be brought to the end of ourselves is to wake up and recognize just how bad and evil that sin is left unchecked. Now, that one seems to be, to me, what's happening with these brothers. None of these brothers, we can say, were completely given over to their sin in the end. Every one of these brothers in the end turned to the Lord. It's a miracle of his grace. At this point, however, they're not there yet. God allows them to do grievous things against his own holy will, not, not because he approves them, but because he wants to humble them by showing him the worlds of evil that are found within them. He's trying to humble Joseph 
We've already said that. By allowing him to suffer the effects of the sins of his brothers. But he also wants to humble these brothers by showing them the evil they're capable of and how they need to be saved so that by the end of their life, they come to Joseph and they are willing to bow before him. Because in bowing before Joseph, in their hearts, they're bowing to God finally. They're recognizing and and accepting God's purpose for their life finally. But it takes this sin and it takes many others. Next week we'll see Judah commit some terrible, more further sins that come home to roost in his life in ways that are extremely shameful and humbling. And God is using that to humble Judah. To bring him to the end of himself so that he learns that he needs grace. God allows suffering. God allows sin, and through it, he is working out his purpose. It's a mystery. And yet, even though we can't explain the mystery, it's important to know that that mystery exists. And that it's, it's explainable to God. God understands it. Welcome back, kids. Yeah. The reason why it's important to know that God understands that mystery is because when we don't, it can feel very, we can feel very lost, almost like we're boats sort of cut off from the anchor and we're just drifting around in our suffering and we can't explain it and so therefore there must not be an explanation. It's so much better to know, wait a minute, I don't know how he's doing it, but that he's doing it, the Bible assures me. That he knows what he's doing, the Bible assures me. And so therefore I can learn how to walk and trust in him. And that'll be our final point, which we'll actually look at next week as sort of the segue into the story about Judah and Tamar because that story will continue some of the same themes of God working to humble his people even through allowing them to fall into sin and to commit sin.